you know, this is kind of a special thing we're doing. I don't know. Have we done it before this way? No virtual lug and a single focus for an entire episode. Is this even Linux Unplugged, Chris? You might call it a special featured edition. It's the Unplugged Plugged In show? I'm not sure. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 272 for October 23rd, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's going in with a plan this week. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We have a special episode, a feature edition of the Unplugged program, something we've been working on. For a little while, we're going to do a deep dive into what the hell Jack Audio is, why people keep experimenting with it, and then why they run away crying. We went deep, and we'll walk away with a little open source help to get you going with audio magic on your box. We'll tell you about building a studio inside a laptop, complicated audio routing between applications, how we're doing it all with free software. But then, we'll look ahead to the future, to the Pipewire future. We'll bring on the main developer, Wim Tamens of Pipewire to chat about our questions, about what's going to happen with Pulse Audio video on Linux, and how it's all going to work in a Wayland future. Wim has had a long, distinguished career going way back, and he'll tell us about some of that and what we should expect in the future. And then, at the end of the show, but not quite the end, don't call it the last part of the show, because last but not least, a Precision 5530 review. This is a beast machine in a spelt, clean-looking package. We'll tell you about the feats that we managed to accomplish with this laptop, and if you're looking for a mobile laptop, something something that's like a desktop killer that run Linux, well, you might want to consider the Precision line. It is a heck of a work machine. So this being a special episode, we're actually recording ahead of time because I'm down at MeetBSD. As this is going out, I'll be on my way back from Meet BSD, which is sort of what um, got us thinking along these lines of like, how can we take our new ThinkPad laptops and build a studio inside the ThinkPad? See, here in the studio, we have a whole bunch of equipment to handle multiple calls and remote connections and the mumble room so we can have a virtual lug and our different, we have four microphones in studio. There's literally stacks of audio devices just <laughs> sitting on the table here. You can't, you can't take that with you when you want to go to a community event like Meet BSD. You can't pack all that up. And so in the past, we've done all these different incarnations with some mobile hardware, a couple of machines, depending on the event. But we set out to build it all into one singular ThinkPad. And that's sort of where Jack came in. And I, I have to be honest, even though we've been doing audio forever, I have avoided Jack. I've avoided, you kind of, have you avoided it? Just haven't really had the need? I would say avoided. I mean, uh, is avoided the right term for a technology that you know exists and that you're you're interested in? And you, and you know it would be helpful. You know it would be helpful. You know it's powerful. It's sort of like any of those topics that you're interested in. I don't know if you're like me, Chris, but you know, I can't. I can't get like a small understanding of something. Yeah. It's hard to just like use the outside edge of a tool and not deep dive. But right. I also know how long those deep dives take. So I think it's one of those topics where it's like, Jack is cool. I'd like to learn it. But I already have 10 other things I'm learning right now. Yeah, and Pulse Audio seems to work, right? For, so, my, for my desktop needs, just fine. totally covered by Pulse. So have you ever wanted out there, dear audience, to take the audio output of, say, one piece of software and send that audio to another piece of software? Have you ever wanted to take the output of that same program and maybe send it to two other programs and then maybe record the result of, say, the first program? That's what Jack enables. It's this 
comprehensive audio routing and management engine. And because it's so comprehensive and because it can accommodate so many types of setups and musical setups and audio recording setups, it is complex in its nature. But it's also a very clever piece of software that honestly manages to pull off some magic. In, in the time that it can route stuff inside your machine and all of that, it honestly is like a black magic box. You get this instant sort of flexibility that you, you just don't have with any other tooling. And I'll tell you what the damn shame is, is that it is a super impressive piece of software engineering, but its complexity leads a lot of us free software users to just kind of not pay a lot of attention to it. I know a few people in our audience have really deep dived because I've gotten notes over the years like, Chris, you got to check this out. Chris, you and like, hey, Citizen comes in our virtual lug. He sounds amazing. And he's doing his audio processing through Jack. And so I'd always known there's something there. It wasn't until we started doing our deep dive that I learned to appreciate how sophisticated Jack is and how, how really they have managed to pull off a few shortcuts that make it uh, very competitive in its, its performance and all of that. So we wanted to get this to a place where we could build that studio inside our laptop, multi-channel mobile broadcast studios. But we couldn't just set it up once and call that good. Right, no, that's not going to work. I mean, we, no. need, we need something that's going to be reliable. And as you know, we, we are a bit of some distro hoppers here on the Linux Unplugged program. On Laptop shippers, shoppers, switchers. <laughs> really, we're not using the same devices just about any time. So if we set it up <laughs> once perfectly on one machine, that's just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted, to, we wanted to make it something that not only could we use to get going quick, but also that the audience could use. So uh, when we're all done here, we'll tell you about a script that you'll be able to use actually a couple of scripts to help set all this stuff up on your own machine. We've only done a little testing on different distros, so there's more room there. We'll tell you more about that too. But we wanted to accomplish fancy schmancy audio routing inside the laptop. And we, for example, we want to take audio from, say, one mic interface and play the soundboard and maybe also keep a backup recording of my remote host, mix it in the right way so that way people aren't hearing each other to get echo, but they're hearing um, the other individuals in the call, things like that. Right. I mean, here in the studio, we've got a, a big 32-channel mixer, and we've got, I don't know, three or four computers, each with audio interfaces attached, feeding into those, and then complicated mix bus settings to get those all going the right places so I can connect in when I'm remote and hear the mumble people and maybe be the right volume, at yeah. least these days. Yeah. That's a lot to do. It is. And, 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 and it's complicated, even in hardware. So trying to do it in software is, is, is really, and getting it reproducible, which is where the script comes in, is really tricky. This was an area I didn't even realize wasn't quite covered very well by the traditional tooling because, like, Pulse works pretty darn well, and it's good enough for, like, basic, you know, if you're just joining, if I'm just joining to the studio connection, fine, I don't need anything fancy. If mm -hmm. I'm just joining a, you know, a, a video conference session. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, once you start needing to pass audio, audio from multiple one, pieces yep. or, or platforms that aren't designed to talk to each other, yeah. that's where Jack shines. Like, say you're playing something on your desktop and you want to send that to the Chrome browser. How do you do that? How can you take audio that's coming out of Firefox and send it to just your headphones and not your speakers without changing defaults for your whole desktop, all of that, just on a per-application basis? And you, so it, it is something that is, you can use it in a fairly simple, I just want to take this and send it to that kind of setup, a one-to-two setup, or you can reproduce a studio. And so we decided our all-in-one box solution would be powered by our two identical ThinkPads, so that way we have redundancy here and it's also good for testing. Uh, as of now, it's Ubuntu 18.04 is the base. We're both running Neon. Uh, but it should work on uh, Kubuntu, and it has worked on Ubuntu 18.10 as well. 
And uh, the whole idea is to create a couple of scripts to make it consistent. You log into a system. You perhaps open an application or run the script. We'll go through the process. And then everything gets set up. And that part of it right there, I'm hoping that we can share with the audience and then people will perhaps add their own distribution as we go down. So what uh, what are we accomplishing when we first log in the machine? We want to get set up to be able to use Jack and record sound. What's the script doing? What are we doing ourselves? I think just to start, you know, get get your distribution all set up, you know, a machine that you can normally use. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, the first set of scripts would just be to bootstrap the installs because you got to get all the packages. And sure, you can just install Jack, but... There's a whole suite because, you know, it's the Linux open source community. There's a whole suite of tooling that you might want and probably do want to go around. And a lot of those are not in necessarily the standard distributions. A big one for us is the KX Studio suite of applications. Huge. KX Studio is a great resource. It's available as a distribution or as repositories or just of individual dev files too. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of it is really just getting that shoehorned into place the right way and then getting all of the dependencies installed. Yeah. And that's going to be the part in regards to our script that we release that is going to be the most distro-specific, I imagine. Yes, exactly. Package names will change. If you're on Arch, then there's probably a whole other set of packages. I'm not sure. I haven't actually tried Jack on Arch yet. I'm sure it's well-supported, but you might need to hit the AUR up for some of those more esoteric applications. Yeah, the, so you think of it as this way. Your your base Linux desktop has good sound for just doing playback and, uh, you know, everyday computer use. It's when you want to step it up to the next level where you, you got to install this Jack stuff. And it's like you're adding in this audio engine into your Linux box. You're, you're, you're grafting it in, and it has the ability to pretend to be a Pulse device. It has the ability to pretend to be Alsa, too. So applications that talk Pulse and Alsa just can automatically, by that nature, talk to Jack. Right. So it's it's functionally just another sound server that runs on your system. And so it it talks to the, the kernel driver part of the Alsa stack and gets input that way. And then individual clients that want to support Jack, well, they implement some of the Jack API, and then they register what are called clients and can get to talk to Jack. And you can you can register inputs and outputs and then Jack lets you route between those. Yeah, like in our case we set up VLC as a client and we set up Chrome as a client. Yeah, exactly. And then we could route audio between them. In fact, I snuck a recorder into Wes's lab here at the studio and captured the first moment when we actually got this working. The audio is a little rough, but it's it's genuine like, we made it! So how will we know if Chrome's getting audio from the right source? Right, we should be able to just go to Chrome in. Okay, so now, okay, so that goes from VLC left to Chrome left, from VLC right to Chrome right. So then, it's, so it's a stereo, that's cool. Yeah, and you can change that in the script of how, like, do you want it to be mono? Yeah. So now we play this file in, in VLC. We go over to Chrome, and if I can select the right settings, this one oh. will be a lot easier. Aha! Okay, do it again. Hit it again. Let's see if it works. And the survey says, "Boom!" So we're now we're going, we're sending VLC audio into Chrome. Yeah. And so we just have a Chrome in Jack source. So anything that gets sent to Chrome in would show up in there. Exactly. So it could be the soundboard. It could be another audio interface I have plugged in if I have two people. Yep. Oh, that's great. That's great. One of the things that makes this doable once it's up and running is there is a UI where you are dragging wires from one device to the other device or to an application. What's that called? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the Jack Patch Bay. And there's multiple, again, there's multiple imitations of just about all of these different types of tools. We're using one from the KX Studio suite for a, a whole suite of reasons. Which really. is a nice, cute front end. Yeah. Oh, it's, and I mean it's QT. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice, though, yeah. It gives, it gives you a nice visual space, and you can manage different 
different jack sessions. You can save a session and load them. Am I getting terminology right there? Uh, yes. Okay. E- yeah, exactly. Really, under the hood, we're using Lottish or the Lottie session handler, which, yeah, lets you save all that state. Once you've got, I mean, you can find some pictures online. We might, we might have some stuff to share down the road. Once you get these patch bays really configured, there are a lot of connections, especially, you were kind of talking about it, but, you know, if, if you're joined by a remote host and you're playing from the soundboard and maybe some music from another program or playing a clip from YouTube or something, well, you want to make sure everyone can hear just what they're supposed to hear and not everything else. And you need to be able to monitor everything that's going through the system as well. So you end up with, you know, one output over here, but it's going to six different places. <laughs> yep, yep. And actually, the UI makes it pretty in- intuitive. You can, you know, you can hover over it. It'll highlight just which lines go into which input and output. Yeah, it's a bit of a physical representation in software of what we do here in the real world. Right. You can imagine just taking like uh, like TRS plugs and plugging yes. them into two. Plug- it's, it's basically that. Mm-hmm. We'll put a visualization of what we're talking about on the GitLab page for the script. So we'll have that linked in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 272. If you want to see what Wes is talking about, we'll have a visual there for on the script page. Just to uh, clarify things a bit here, we're using Jack 2 right now, and that's just one additional way some of this stuff can be really confusing. Jack's been around since 2002 mm. and now runs on a whole bunch of platforms. So as you can imagine, really like any good open source project, there's a lot of good functionality, but not all of it's super well documented or it's just you know spread out between six different sources. Yeah, and one thing that confuses me is there's technically two versions of Jack. There's Jack 1 and Jack 2. Right. So originally, Jack 2 was going to be a multiprocessor-aware replacement for Jack 1, but it turns out that their feature sets are just ever so slightly different. Like, if you need to use two interfaces, let's two say. Two sound cards yeah, two or two s- USB audio devices. Even two, like, snowball microphones or yeah, two headsets. Exactly. Well, only Jack 1 really supports that very well. But if you want some of the fancier features or to work on a bunch of other platforms... That's Jack 2's wheelhouse. Now, they both implement the same C API in the background, so it's, you, know, you, applications, you can write your own. Yeah, the applications, applications don't, don't care. Don't care. Okay. That's confusing, though, just even having two versions. And it seems like if they ever, and hopefully they will, get around to creating Jack 3, then they're going to remerge them again. It's sort of like the intention-ish. Right. They didn't. <laughs> everyone agrees there doesn't need to be two. It's just that they both work right now. And people so, like both of them for different reasons. people use them both. Exactly. But for our purposes, we're using Jack 2. Yeah, we're using Jack 2. And there's a lot of features of Jack that we don't care about for our particular purposes because we do a lot of offline recording or you know just some live shows with effects done or minimal effects that we can all do in, in hardware that we have. Yeah. But Jack excels at low latency applications. It's actually driven a lot of the work for the real-time kernel patch set that mm-hmm. exists for Linux because when you're doing, you know, if you're if you're doing a complicated live show, you need fast feedback. And Jack can get you the really low like sub 10 millisecond latency that you're gonna gonna want to hit. Since we're automating this process for ourselves and a big part of what we're doing now as part of Linux Academy is trying to open source the stuff we do. Right off the bat, we're going to open source the script. We're going to post it up on our new gitlab.jupytercode.io GitLab instance. We'll have some information there. The thing to really take away is there's two scripts, one that's pretty Ubuntu-specific that installs the packages, and then another script. But I'll let Wes tell you about that. Right. So, yeah, the first script is just to set it up. And we're, we're targeting Ubuntu right now. If people want to implement that script or just make documentation for how to set those things up on other systems, hey, that would be welcome. Very the, much so. The other script is sort of our our like our playbook script. It's it's how we're going to get everything up and running so that Chris, let's say you're on the road and you just you know you've got your ThinkPad, you can you know you've already set up everything for Jack, you can just launch this script and it'll go through 
set things up just how it should be. In particular, since we're using a lot of Pulse audio applications, Jack includes some connectors so you can tie Pulse to Jack. And, it, you know, it's pretty featured. You can, you can name them and get them all set up. But we want to make sure that happens every time. So it sets those up, launches applications so that they connect to the right Pulse sync so that we go get the sound going where we need it to go, and then launches our favorite DAW, Reaper. The nice thing about Jack being around for a while and the fact that it's pretty well-respected software has meant that support for it has crept into more areas than you suspect. Jack is one of those things that's kind of like Samba, where you realize that Samba's been snuck into more devices and things in this world than you ever thought possible. Jack's a lot like that. Uh, It wasn't until we really started looking into this that we realized our audio editor and recorder of choice for Linux, Reaper, the Reaper workstation, has... Brilliant support for Jack. It just plugs right in. You get a whole bunch of inputs and outputs, and then it's super... I mean, we went through it, Chris. It's so easy. You just pick literally the names of the clients that you want right in the Reaper UI. And I can assign dedicated tracks to each one of those. So my microphone is its own dedicated track, the soundboard, and my remote guest. I can keep a backup audio copy on its own track all through Jack. One laptop, one microphone, one set of headphones... It's something that is just, it's just to me when I, I'm literally right now recording this sitting in front of a 32-channel mixer, it's, it really kind of blows my mind. <laughs> it's really... And it's the same laptop. Like, you haven't done anything. You haven't paid for any expensive no. proprietary software. I really feel like we came across this magical open source project that I've heard a lot of people talking about that I avoided for a really long time. And the, the real magic they do that you just mentioned is that low latency. I know I mentioned earlier, but that is... From my understanding of talking to a couple of people who really know how to build this stuff, it's almost unmatched. Right? And, and that's one of the things about Pulse that it just can't do. Pulse does a great job of, you know, combining things, letting you control which output from which application goes to which output device that you want, stuff that we couldn't easily do before. But there's a lot of latency involved because it wasn't, it wasn't designed for that. It's designed for a good end-user listening experience, trying to minimize dropped packets and, and that sort of thing. You have very different goals when you want low latency, especially involves a lot of this is just passing bytes around and making sure that you don't allocate memory and you don't do anything that won't be constant time. Right. So clearly Pulse has its limitations. It's good for certain applications. And I'd say Jack's limitations, it could be your everyday sound server, but Jack's real limitations might be its complexity, its its general tooling set around it. Right. And this is where the opportunity for Pipewire opens up. And Pipewire not only brings in and solves the audio side of this, but it also solves the video side of this. And this is really going to be the future of Linux's media pipeline, assuming that Pipewire is successful. And that's why we wanted to bring on our special guest. So joining us now is Wim Timus, and he is the man to talk to about Pipewire. Wim, welcome to Linux Unplugged. Hello, everybody. Good to have you here. Wim, just because I was a little starstruck, I got a little nerd starstruck when I was Googling you. I thought if you would indulge us, maybe we'd start sort of towards the beginning of your career. You've got some standing in this industry. You've been working in audio and multimedia development since the Commodore 64, true? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Impressive. (laughs) Yeah, that gives you a history here. What did you do on the Commodore 64? I started writing demos, um, just small little programs in assembly, and then it became like bigger demos and more complicated effects, and then I started to do some games. Then I kind of moved on to Amiga, and then I did some more demos and experimenting, and then I learned C and got some more multimedia stuff. So it's kind of a hobby that has been going on since I was very small. 
So yeah, it's always been a bit like, uh, yeah, image and audio and animation and stuff like that. Multimedia, I guess. Yeah, well, what I realized when I was Googling was that I've been following your career for quite a while. I just didn't realize it was you because fast forward down, you know, many years later and you ended up being one of the primary developers of GStreamer and you worked at Fluendo as well, true? Yes, yes, that's true. So, um, yeah, that's, that was a bit of a weird story because I was um, doing in my free time, uh, I was working on, uh, on open source stuff and I was going to write a video editor. Uh, but then I needed a multimedia framework, I realized. And then I discovered like the early beginnings of GStreamer back in 1999, I think it was. And then I started hacking on that actually in my free time for quite a few years. Yeah, until I got a job doing that, actually. I was working in a bank back in the day, so something completely different. <laughs> GStreamer 1.0, September 24, 2012. I can't believe it was that long yeah. ago. Wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah, and that's amazing. Yeah. Wim, and now you're a principal software engineer at Red Hat, so... And that has brought us to talk about Pipewire today. Very excited to have you on the show, especially because audio is a big area that we work in. And we have a couple of questions for you. I mean, just to start off, one of the things we're talking about on today's show is Jack. And so we were very curious to see that Pipewire is going to have Jack support built right in. What's the status? Is that something I could use today? Uh, use today is a big word. Uh, Jack is, is quite uh, stable and uh, well-established, but um, there are some things that work. Uh, um it's all just not ready packaged and easy to test and all of that stuff, but we're working on that. So soon, I, I'm hoping in a, in a couple of months, we'll actually be able to test it properly. Wim, I think it would be a good idea if we just paused really quick and defined Pipewire to a degree. Uh, when you read the Pipewire site, it says, and this is a pretty big ambitious goal, Pipewire is a project that aims to greatly improve handling of audio and video under Linux. Boom, that right there is a massive statement. How is it going to accomplish that? Um, so, <laughs> yes, so basically, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to take all the bits and pieces that exist, the good stuff, and combine them into one new thing. <laughs> it's, uh, it turned out to be what is currently happening in Pipewire. So, um, as the base for uh, audio processing and, and a general framework for these things, uh, Jack, the, the design, seems to work fine. Like parts from GStreamer, for example, for doing buffer negotiation and format stuff, that seems to work fine too. And there's lots of other things from plug-in architectures that, that seem to work fine together that allows you to build something that is actually going to be able to compete with core audio, for example. Core audio, I've been looking at that quite, quite a lot lately. Don't agree with everything that they do, but um, what they can do is pretty impressive. Mm, I love to hear that. That's good. So that's you're taking a look at how the other side has made it work somewhat successfully. Yes. So I think with the combination of Jack and also with uh, what they have in core audio, like um, I.O. units, if we have something similar, that would be something what um, Pulse Audio did to take in arbitrary streams and feed that into a Jack pipeline or sort of pipe because you need something more than Jack. Um, 
that will get us very close, I think, to an ideal position. And something that I learned this year is that we need an external session manager, um, something that ties in closely with, um, with the desktop and all of the configuration stuff. Because that is typically also something that is currently lacking in um, Pulse Audio and, and Jack, the setup of the whole thing. How do you say my card, uh, it has four channels, but really uh, channel one and two is are not connected to anything. And you shouldn't assume it's... Or I have two sound cards and I want them to make them into a surround sound. So the session manager would it also in theory, allow you to save state so you could load an entire session up. Say, you say for example, you get to an area that has a lot of audio equipment that you plug in, and now all this equipment's become available that wasn't there earlier in the day. Um, well, the, well, that is the, the session manager, that the, how Jack defines it. Ah. Yeah, it's like loading of like complete setups of uh, audio processing pipelines. Uh, I don't know exactly how we're going to call that. Maybe we should call the, the other session manager something else. But what I mean with the session manager is managing all of the devices that are on your system. Like I plug in my uh, my USB headset or something and I'm playing a video. What should happen with the audio? This decision that is currently being made for moving the sound from your video player to your newly plugged in device, it's like the decision is made currently by Pulse Audio inside a module. Um, but you can't really tweak that anywhere and the desktop can't really get to that setting. You can't really influence anything. So I want to make that a bit more uh, accessible to the desktop and have the user be more in control of that. So that would be something maybe where like, if, I, if two people were using the same computer, they could have completely different audio configurations from the same hardware and that would be the pipewire could be aware of the different user configurations uh, yes yes for example yeah if well the pipewire itself for example it will start up it will load all the devices but in itself it will just sit there because um, then there is the session manager that starts up connects to pipewire and actually goes and restore uh, information from a database to say uh, this card and all of these channels they get these labels and these devices get grouped together and those are priorities and so on so that if an app comes VLC for example that you know uh, VLC uh, it presents me with a, a surround sound stream the user wants a surround sound stream to this card and then we link that all together like that so that would be the, the responsibility of the session manager, managing all of the audio that is coming in and also the video because it works for video as well and, and routing that to the right device. And it also goes, for example, what we currently don't have or something that is not accessible is, for example, equalizers or, or filter setups. You know, you can have like in, um, in other operating systems, you can, for example, say, I want Dolby surround sound or something uh, as an output. So for that, you can set up a, a little filter that, that will do this conversion for you. Currently, that is totally not accept or accessible from anything, pulse audio or things like that. So we want to make that a bit more configurable. And all of these, this management of these filters and setups uh, would be done by a session manager under control of um, the desktop. So that is currently an idea we have. That makes a lot of sense. I, I picked up a lot of uh, unification in this project, joining both audio and video, treating them in the same system. That really hasn't been how we've done it on Linux. Have you 
Have you seen any particular challenges in trying to join those into the same system? No, not at all. Really, it's from a pipewire perspective, it's basically moving memory around between like apps uh, that are linked together in a graph. If it's audio buffers or video buffers, it doesn't really matter from that point of view. So it's basically an inter-app communication of, of multimedia at the pipewire level. So f- from that point of view, there is not really any difference. So what we are going to do in the session manager then is actually put meaning to all these things. Um, for video, for example, we don't really have a good story yet about um, what we currently have for video is a thing like, okay, you have your desktop and you have your desktop screen and we provide as a, as a stream in Pipewire and then you can have your app connect to it and get the stream and do something with it. That makes a lot of sense. That seems actually a pretty straightforward. Yeah, so it's one app sends multimedia to another app. So it's nothing more than that. But it's the session manager that brings meaning to that, of course. Then, then you have to have some logic around it to make that meaningful. It seems like you, you mentioned it a little bit up at, up at the start, but there's a lot. Uh, it seems like there's a lot from Jack here that yeah. that sort of makes sense or can be extended to other systems. How have you? Has there been difficulties getting the Jack support going? That's one area we're just fascinated by, and um, seeing that Pipewire can can maybe support these low latency workloads is pretty exciting. How how is how has that been? Um, that that is, I mean, it maps pretty well one to one to Jack, so that wasn't really a big problem. The the problem, of course, is getting it fast enough because Jack takes a lot of shortcuts, uh, you know, everywhere. So yeah, yeah, that's 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 kind of the only challenge there. Um, so currently, it's kind of pretty competitive. It's in the same ballpark as Jack for the same kind of buffer size. It's a bit more complicated in what it does uh, internally, but it can actually be optimized still. That's great. So we touched briefly on um, Jack sessions, not the session management we were talking about before, but session management within Jack. Will Pipewire support that as well? Well, the thing is with the session manager that there is not really a consensus about what what kind of features it should have. So for Jack itself, um, there's the the internal session manager, but there's also a couple of other session managers. I, I looked at them before last year. But um, yeah, I don't remember them very well. But some of them were, for example, able to deconstruct sessions across machines over a network and stuff like that. Others, like the normal Jack one, restores locally on your desktop only. So the question is, well, what? I've been told that there should be a session manager built in. But then if I want to do that, I want to do something that is uh, that is powerful enough for everybody's use case because pointless. Right. So there's still some quiz questions at the design stage here to get. You want to make sure you have the right scope and feature set before you go build it all out. Yeah. So my thinking currently is that the session manager uh, also runs externally as an external app that configures pipelines across machines. I don't see it uh, exactly as a part of Pipewire currently. I don't know if we need to ship uh, like yet another session manager. Maybe there's one that already sure. works well enough. There's a few of them out there. Yeah, right. That, that, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. So, okay, in this glorious new Pipewire future, is it just going to be one more daemon I have to run on my system, or is it going to be something that can really replace and talk to all the apps I have? So it sounds like Jack support is well underway. Um, what, about, what about all the Pulse apps that have proliferated on the desktop? Yeah, so the current plan is 
also audio server and jack uh, daemon they get replaced by one daemon pipewire daemon um, and then you have the the api the jack api like libjack.so and libpulse.so they get replaced by uh, pipewire versions that basically have the same api so apps keep on running but internally they convert to uh, pipewire protocol which for jack apps is pretty much one-to-one conversion for pulse audio it's basically also a one-to-one conversion but with the module that runs on the server that kind of um, is similar to what pulse audio does mm. it talks pulse in another in another in another way yeah it's a new implementation of the pulse client libraries and the same for also for also for example you can do an also plugin so that's quite easy <laughs> also lives <laughs> even in the pipewire future <laughs> while we're talking about the future of the desktop uh pipewire is also being built with Wayland in mind i presume uh i don't know what you mean with that well, so specifically around sandboxed applications, applications delivered in flat packs that are on a Wayland desktop where perhaps things are a little more contained, applications are going through portals to get audio instead of just talking to the system, those kinds of things. Yes, yes. So the system is designed to, to for example, not have anything like shared memory or stuff like that that is very difficult to, to implement in a sandboxed environment so it's mostly built on on file passing file descriptor passing so that way you can give shared memory from the, the server to the client and stuff like that and also what we currently are doing is for example if you have a client that uh, wants to capture for example screencast which is something we have implemented what uh, happens then is it goes to the portal and it says to the portal i want to do a screen capture what the portal the portal is running outside of the sandbox and the way to talk to the portal is through dbus and that is a secured uh, part that the sandbox right. app can do and then the portal will set up a session in pipewire where it configures just the screen capture screen together with the with motor that is under gnome uh, and then it gives that session as a file descriptor. It gives the file descriptor back to the sandbox application. And that is basically the file descriptor that it uses to open the connection with, with Pipewire server. Now, if it does that, then it only sees the stream that, that has the, the screen capture in it. Right? So there is no sound cards or anything that are visible. So from a Pipewire point of view, or from a client point of view, it only sees that there is a stream with capture of data. So that way we can use the portal to lock down um, a session for each sandbox individually. <laughs> Sounds like we're finally getting a sort of rich, lifted API design where instead of just having to, to deal with files, we actually have you know a more complicated system that can enable those kinds of use cases. Yeah, so there, there are still a couple of questions for this, especially if you add and remove devices and you want to dynamically change permissions on devices, how 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 we keep all of this synchronized between portal and sandboxed app and pipewire and so on. These are questions we still need to answer. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Although I do now think I understand pipewire a lot more than yeah. I did just 10 minutes ago. Yeah. If I get, so I'm, I'm kind of excited over here now. If I want to go play with it, how do I do that? Is that something I can expect to see maybe available in Fedora 29? <laughs> yeah, so currently uh, it's all old versions uh, floating around. So nothing that supports any of the audio use case. Um, 
So that's all done in a work branch currently. So you'll have to check out Git uh, and check out the work branch. And from there on, well, it's getting better. So we have sub-modules now uh, that are automatically built with Jack support, ALSA, and Pulse Audio. I think there's also a script now to set up the environment so that you actually have those libraries first in your library path. And then basically you should be able to run any app on top of Pipewire. Well, we are here on the show cheerleading you on. Very excited, Wim. And I hope sometime in the future we're at an event where I can buy you a beverage of your choice because I really appreciate all of the work you've done for years, not just in Pipewire. So uh, we'll have links to the GitHub page, the project page. Is there anywhere else, any other resources you want to point people to for the Pipewire project? No, just the website and the Git GitHub pages will do for now. We don't have a lot of other things. There is a wiki uh, on the Pipewire website. There is a wiki as well on GitHub, uh, which has some ideas we talked about here. And I'll try to keep that up to date. We will track that down and we'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. Wim, thanks for taking a bit of your evening and join us on the Unplug Show. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Wim for coming on. Now we're really excited about the future of video and audio on Linux. And to power that media in the future, you're going to need a powerful system. And sitting in front of us here, we have the Dell Precision 5530. It was sent to us by Dell for review. And uh, it's it's funny. Well, <laughs> look at this. It's surprising. It's 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 really deceptively small for a 15-inch laptop. I mean, it looks big when you're when you're just looking at it by itself. But you have it next here to your 14-inch ThinkPad. And it's about the same size. They don't feel like different classes of device, really. One's just a you know a little bit bigger boned. Yeah. So it is a 15 inch laptop, but it's sort of in a, almost like a 14 inch size because it's that edge to edge display setup that they have. And when you open that up, it, it really feels like they somehow snuck an even larger laptop into this precision. It's a it feels like a very large screen, and it's got that standard that we all like now that carbon fiber mesh design on the top inside which wraps around a chiclet-style keyboard with a pretty large, pretty practical trackpad. It's smooth. It's one of the better ones I've used. Wes and I both like it in some circumstances. If you're trying to get across the screen, it's like one of the best trackpads on the market. If you're trying to do really fine text control, it seemed like it was a little jumpy. I think especially combined with the the high DPI nature of the screen, those two factors together, especially on maybe some an application that doesn't work too well or doesn't have the scaling built in, it gets difficult. None of that matters. None of that really matters, though, once the screen turns on. It comes loaded with 1604, and, you know, it's fine. It's, it's a little boring at this point. 1810's out. But once loaded with Ubuntu 1810 and its new theme, this 3840 by 2160 screen is so vibrant and the colors are so bold, you would swear they were leaping off the screen. When Wes got to the studio the first time I was playing around with this with 1810, I was telling Wes about it. He's like, well, I got to see this. I was like, okay, stay here. And I ran upstairs, and I grabbed the laptop, and I come downstairs, and I open up the screen, and you were impressed. I still am. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> it's next to my ThinkPad, and boy, does it put the ThinkPad's it just puts that screen to oh, shame. It's, it's not even comparable. The colors are so much more accurate and superior, and the dynamic range is way superior on the Dell. Plus, it's 4K versus 1080p. And it's just it's it's just bright. It feels alive and vivid. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's better than the MacBook screen. It's one of the best screens I've ever looked at on a laptop. It's actually one of the best computer screens I've ever looked at. This seems like, I mean, even if, even if you weren't doing video production, just editing some photos on here would be a treat. Yeah, it's it's really something, especially with the newer theme that has really sharp colors. So on the right side of this wedge-shaped bottom half of the laptop, 
You've got an SD card slot reader, which is great to see. A handy USB-A port is still there, which I much appreciate. And one of my favorite Dell features I hope they never get rid of, it's been on our XPSs that Wes and I have both owned forever, is that LED battery meter that you can push in. And at a quick glance, it gives you a charge state of the battery. Don't have to turn things on. Don't have to worry. You're trying to grab it to go out the door. You want to know where you're at. One it's right there. It's right there. It's right there. And then on the left side of the wedge, you have a traditional barrel power connector. It is not USB-C powered. And that is to accommodate the laptop's 130-watt power needs. Ooh. Yes. And you just can't push that over USB-C yet. Uh, next to that is another USB-A. Then you have a full-size HDMI out and a Thunderbolt-capable USB-C port and a headphone jack on that. And inside this sucker, it's got a 97-watt-hour battery, so the absolute limit of what the FAA will allow. And what Dell calls, it's something they're very proud of, a sophisticated thermal management system that they claim helps it per- perform well under load. I will say we've been messing with this machine all day, and it hasn't been plugged in. It's just now getting down to, oh, a half hour of time remaining. Yeah, I've, I have not done extensive battery testing, but I have done extensive, extensive thermal and uh, CPU pen- punishing testing. And I will say their claims of a good thermal system are there. It, it, uh, it, the fans are there, but it's very mild. It's, uh, it's, if you're in a room with another computer fan, it's almost unnoticeable. It's pretty good. If you're in a quiet, silent room, you'll hear it kick up, but right. it's one of the more pleasant fan noises. They have done a really good job there. So the, the hardware-wise, the CPU in the one that we got is a Core i9-8950K with 12 megabytes of cache, and it peaks up to 4.8 gigahertz nearly 5 gigahertz, and it has more RAM in the cache than, uh, it has more memory in the cache than I had RAM in my old computers when I was a kid. That's insane. I, 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 I didn't even have storage means that size. And all of that right next to the CPU. Uh, incredible. It's got, I mean, can you imagine what kind of difference that must make? It's loaded with 32 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM. That i9 CPU supports up to 64 gigs in this laptop. It's got a Quadro NVIDIA graphics in it, and it has a 512 gigabyte Samsung Professional MVNE. Very nice system. As you can imagine, it benchmarked very well. I have a link in the show notes, if you would like to compare your system to this very system that I reviewed, you can read the link in the show notes on how to do that. I decided to use that. This is a feature of uh, the Pharonix Benchmark Suite, and it integrates with a site called openbenchmark.org, where you can opt to post your results and then compare them to other systems or compare them to your own systems, and it gives you one command line to run to make that comparison. Oh, that is slick. So I did the baseline benchmarks on the Dell Precision 5530. Then I came down to our studio machines, and I benchmarked them. Oh. And I was able to do a direct comparison between our existing equipment and the laptop. And I will post the one that is our Reaper workstation, our main audio production system. I will post that in the comparison if you want to take a look at the differences between a custom-built PC from a couple years ago and this laptop. And there's obvious speed improvements with this brand-new laptop. Just about every single task that we perform in the studio, well, not just about, Every single task, exporting audio, rendering to uh, FLAC, all of the disk transactions, anything that hits the CPU, much faster. In some cases, moderately faster. And it's pretty impressive because these are multi-core, six-core systems in some cases. This is also a six-core laptop, though, so it's... Wait, say that again. Six-core laptop? In a laptop. Yeah, in a, in a laptop. So we decided, well, how do you really 
properly punish a machine like this and put it through its paces. Really, when it's got this much in it. In fact, this this is getting harder and harder as these laptops get more and more incredible. And it's becoming almost a daunting task. And I initially I found this laptop a bit frustrating, if I'm going to be honest with you. It's so fast, it's hard to put it really into words how that is valuable. And I'm in the middle, at the time we record this, of prepping for a trip to meet BSD. I'm going to be going down into the BSD Gray Wolf's Den, and I have to be ready for that. i got to be on my A game. So I kept pushing it off. It was just one more problem I didn't read, one more problem I didn't need right now. You know, didn't need that. I could just deal with it when I get back. That's when I'll do the review. I kept thinking, I'll run the benchmarks, I'll get my data collected, and then I'll spend the time with it to really do the review. But that screen, and it's just good looks in general in the, in the light-up keyboard, which is pretty good. Not, not think that good, but pretty good. Uh, it just kind of kept pulling me back in. Like, it just kept, like, well, I'll do it. You know, I'll just I'll do this. For it was a bit. machine you wanted to use. You didn't have to use it. You have plenty of laptops. Admit it. You find yourself feeling the same way. Using them right now. <laughs> There's two laptops in front of me, and I'm using this one. Yeah, and so... As you would expect, that screen and the and the overall just speed of the machine, I'd take a few moments here, take a few moments there and play around with it. And I started getting things set up. I'd run a thermal test here or there. Maybe I'd, as time went on, I'd start doing a few more things, load a few more bits of software. And pretty soon, I found that I was working on the precision because it was saving me time. It, it had started out a problem, but by the time I was done getting it set up, it was saving me time. It was solving my biggest problem of being out of time. And it was a realization, like an actual realization of how this faster machine can get the job done a little bit faster, which means in the fall, I'm getting out the door before the sunset versus after the sunset. And that actually makes a difference in my life. And right? I can drive home with the sun still out. That improves your mood. It makes you happier. You get your, you get your things finished faster. And why do you need to wait, right? You're, you're rendering out the finished show. Why do you need to wait and hang around for the computer to chug along? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it was. So we set the whole thing up. Uh, Wes got it all set up with uh, Jack. We did uh, the remote studio test. We did the Reaper test. And fair enough, things like Reaper and a couple of Jack apps, they don't look great on the 4K screen. It's a little too small. The, you can still read it if you have good eyesight. But if you struggle to read the screen, you know, that could be a disadvantage potentially. But it'd be a shame because you'd be passing up really one of the most brilliant displays that's got to be in the industry. Ugh. And and everything you do on the machine, it, it's just snappy. There's no lag. It's like getting a brand new machine every day that you use it. Yeah. In fact, I when when I was uh, the first time I I'd brought it down and shown it to Wes so he could see the screen. He then started messing around with it. I'm like. Just sitting there and watching him. And before I even said it, you start, you went over and started launching the terminal. You're like, look how fast this is. Look at the file manager. Look at this. Yeah, it is, it is really impressive. They've got a great machine on their hands. And I think it's of note that I've gotten this far into the review, and I haven't felt it necessary to mention the Linux compatibility. Now, I'm going to talk about that. But I just, I think of note, that used to be what you'd lead with. Right now, it's a footnote. And that footnote is essentially, yeah, it's great. I wiped off the stock install, which was great. It was just a nice standard 16. S- yep. And I, I I wiped the drive and I put 1804. Or I'm sorry, I put 1810 on there. I'm going to have to break that habit. And it has been flawless. Everything has worked. I have gotten a ton of mileage out of the free NVIDIA driver. I have been shocked by that. Now, granted, a lot of my tests weren't GPU-based. They were CPU and disk and network-based. But um, for day-to-day operation on 4K with what feels like one of the fastest desktop Linux experience I've ever had. Like, the things that Canonical has done to 1810, 
GNOME's installation and, and an upstream GNOME have done to improve the performance of GNOME are paying dividends on that machine. So it was a very, very snappy experience. And it all worked without me having to fuss with a single thing. I never had to install a driver. I, I never had any weirdness with uh, when I wiped the drive and I installed it. When I tried out other live distros on it, they saw all of the hardware. 4K support on some of them is, is hit and miss, but that's not on Dell. Out of the box, though, it works great. So you get that you get that MacBook experience. You, you buy it, it comes to your home, and it runs Linux on it. Yeah, I guess it is very much. Or it's it, it's like uh, it's like that MacBook experience, or I suppose that that uh, Microsoft Surface experience. I imagine right, might yeah. be. I bet you it's better than that. If I was betting man, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's pretty impressive, uh, and it's nice to see really high end, well designed equipment that ships Linux. Now, if you were to ask me which computer I would buy now, now having the ThinkPad T480 and comparing it now for a couple of weeks to the Precision 5530, my personal choice would likely still be the ThinkPad. A, I need built-in Ethernet pretty big. That's a pretty big deal when I'm broadcasting. And B, the slightly smaller form factor is just enough that it makes a difference when I'm on the train or on a plane. Right, I mean, so the... The precision, it is not, it's not super heavy. It's probably about four pounds. And it's not, it's not thick. It's remarkably thin, but that means it's it's pretty dense. And it's sized enough that coffee shop, anywhere in your home, put in your bag, that'll all work fine. I wouldn't necessarily like work on a bus or on a crammed train or something. So it's not it's not ultra portable. It's not the laptop you just chuck in your bag and you don't think about, but you can move it around. Yeah, I actually did take a train trip while I had that laptop, and it was a little too large for the coach seating. If I got in the fancy business class, I don't know, that might have been fine. But for the coach seating, it's just a little too large. And if you think about the kind of resources this machine has, that large battery is deceptive because really this is a desktop replacement in all. It's just that it is, it's the thinnest, lightest, smallest desktop replacement I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Like it used to take like an Oryx Pro or a Bonobo size machine to get what you're getting out of this machine now. And they're doing it in a small carbon fiber wedge with aluminum casing. Three years ago, uh, an earlier model of the Precision like desktop replacement line was what I was using every day as my work machine. Mm-hmm. And that thing was like a solid inch thick. <laughs> and it was powerful, right? It was fast and it was great. But that was probably six pounds. It, was, it made my back hurt. I had to lug it around everywhere. The fact that I could get a faster laptop way smaller, way lighter today is, it's just incredible. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the traveler's laptop, but this is the workstation replacement laptop. And if that is the kind of machine you want, you it's going to exceed your expectations. If if you are looking for a workstation replacement that is mobile, that has good battery life, and one of the best screens you've ever seen, that's the use case for this laptop. It's exceptional at that. If you're looking for a laptop to go on the plane, to fit in a small bag, to go on the train, if you're looking for something that is on the lighter side... Right, if all you need is, is you know, some electron apps and a terminal to get your work done, then you, the precision's probably overkill. Yeah, and I think that's something we can all make that determination. We know what kind of customer we are. Well, I can really see, Chris, that you've, been, you've grown fond of this laptop. You like using it. But I've been a little confused because this process has seemed like a struggle for you. I'm a little torn. I, I almost wish I didn't like it so much because I just got the ThinkPad. And it was deceptively hard to review because it's so easy in a review to focus on the stuff that didn't work. And so when you get something that looks great, performs great, and Linux just works great, it's 
what's the angle on that review? And so it, was, it wasn't really until it started solving my day-to-day problems and I was like, oh, crap, I really like this machine. And I think what it is is it took a while for it to sink in how much performance you get. I mean, you get something that turbos up to 4.8 gigahertz. That's nearly 5 gigahertz. Wow. 64 gigabytes of RAM. It's, it's, it's mind-bending. It is a new category of performance machine you can get pre-built with Linux. It's not the first laptop of its kind like this, but it's probably in the highest echelon of what you can get on the market right now in something that is portable and beautiful and feels high-end. Right, and it's from a big-name manufacturer, right? This means that, that if you need a workstation from your, your big corporate job, this is a machine you could get. Yeah, I think this is the new benchmark. You could probably find a machine out there that outspecs it, although it's going to be tough. But you're not going to find a machine that outclasses it. Well, before we finish up this special feature today, we wanted to point you to some other special features that have recently appeared on the TechSnap program. Yeah, we've just done a series of wrapping our brains around the cloud. If this is something that you have a passing interest in or something you have to figure out for your job, I want to point you to three episodes of TechSnap, 385, 386, and 387. It's a cool series of numbers. Uh, 385 is three things to know about Kubernetes, and we did a deep dive there. 386 is what makes Google Cloud different, and we brought on our Google Cloud platform expert to go into some of the interesting details. And I started with what really is like their secret competitive thing, and he had a great answer. Just really fascinating. I was like, oh, that's Google's secret sauce, at least part of it. So that was a good one. And then TechSnap episode 387, Private Cloud Building Blocks, is all about building your own private cloud, either on-premises or maybe a hybrid. And we brought on our OpenStack expert, Amy, and she answered some of my basic questions and then really got into some of the more interesting, like, nitty-gritty stuff. And got us excited about all the potential applications of modern-day OpenStack. Yeah, so it was a great run of episodes that even if you don't know anything about the cloud or you have to work with it day to day, we think there's something there for all of you. So check out techsnap.systems. And again, that's 385, 386, and 387. And you can find links to everything we talked about today at linuxunplugged.com slash 272. Where should they go get more West Payne? You can find me on the Twitter at West Payne. I like it. I'm at Chris L-A-S. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Unplugged program. We'll see you next week. No, Wes, it's next Tuesday. bit curious here, Chris. One of the motivations we didn't talk about earlier for getting all this jack work done is you had your own secret sauce for making this stuff happen. And a little birdie tells me it didn't always involve Linux. How does jack compare? Is this going to work? Yeah, I mean, in the past, before we'd switched over to Linux, this was accomplished on the Mac using an application called Audio Hijack Pro. And it would do a lot of this routing for you. But it it had to install, like, stems into the audio stack that would then have to be revved with each rather even minor update of macOS. And so you'd have to, you'd have to keep that all up to date. Oh, you'd almost have, like a DKMS module for us Linux people. It, yeah, kind of, kind of. Um, and 
you'd have to launch the applications in a specific order, and you'd have to keep up to date on the applications, and it's expensive. So it had its drawbacks, but you could you could you could really kind of piece it all together for a little while, and it would work pretty good. And it had some session management, which was nice, and it could do built-in recording, and it had other nice features like effects and audio monitoring. Um, but the thing that's nice about Jack is not only is it free software and it's Linux-based, which is good because we didn't have a great solution other than carrying around a bunch of rigs when I would go mobile, or like we do at, at Linux Academy, is we have a second studio with a second set of hardware down there. And that's that's nice if I'm going from Studio A to Studio B, but not so great if I'm going to, say, meet BSD. Right, that does not work for everything. And so one of the things we've been doing as an intermediary solution is uh, I just use a technology to connect back into the studio, and we use all of the studio's routing and recording and all of that to do all of this while I'm on the road. Right, it's just like more remote guests. Basically, everyone is remote. Yeah, everyone. But the issue there is I can have latency, I can have network drops, then I have to also have a remote session to get in to control some of this stuff. I have to have a VPN back to the studio. So that's like twice as much bandwidth right there. Yeah, it's a big overhead when you're mobile. And that has been our interim solution while we bridge the gap from the Mac solution to this mobile Linux solution. So that's the big thing for me is now I'm going back to doing a lot of this locally again. So I won't have to be so reliant on that mobile connection. That's the big advantage for me. That's what I'm excited about because the audio hijack stuff was fine. But when you add the scripting capability of this, it it just takes it from like a, what felt like a consumer tool and this feels like a pro tool because it's all automated. My session's ready for me to go once the scripts are done, you know, right. running. You have all the flexibility that you could possibly need. And sure, there's a little more learning curve up front. You got to get familiar with your tools. But then you have a handy set of tools. You know what's funny about this is this theme repeats itself in all areas of when I switched to Linux. For years, you know, I've been running it since the 90s. And the, like audio and video production was the last holdout. I'm just, I've just given up on video production for a while, but audio production is what I'm passionate about right now. And we move that over, but the thing is, the theme that keeps repeating itself is Linux starts way behind. Whatever the Linux open source solution is, it starts just way terrible. behind. Yeah, it's way behind, right? And then it kind of gets up there and you're watching, it's a little buggy, it's a little unstable, it's a little bit of a joke. And then at some point, it exceeds anything that's capable on the commercial platform. Like, I feel like Plasma Desktop's there now with Mac OS and Windows. Yeah. And Jack and eventually Pipewire are that same thing for Linux. They are, they are, they are a superior solution than what's available on Windows and Mac. And that's why you see Jack ported to Android and iOS. Yes, iOS and Windows don't and Mac. Don't forget Solaris. Because it offers something that those systems don't have. And when you combine it with your scripts that you've created, which are pretty straightforward but handy... It makes it a reproducible pro setup. It's something that you could sit down on a laptop and get boom, 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 all set up, and you're good to go in an event. And we just check it out. And then when you add new additions, you check those in. And when I go on location, I check out the latest version of the script and magic. Right. Or if you if you have a hardware failure, you know, someone spills coffee on your laptop at Meet BSD, those rude BSD guys, geez, <laughs> they need to buy you a new laptop. You could get it all set up again in minutes. The Gray Wolf's Den. <laughs> 